Odd Conduit Media. The Sandman Unlocked. Dreamers, and welcome to another episode of The Sandman Unlocked. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sean, and I'm thrilled you're joining us for our breakdown of The Sandman, episode 11, Dream of a Thousand Cats, and Calliope. I'm joined by two co-hosts who walk among us and we do not know them, Ben. Hello, Ben. (laughs) Greetings, Sean. And Ashley. Hey, Ashley. (laughs) Hi, Sean. On each TV deep dive, we'll be working our way through four sections. First, we'll summarize that week's episode and provide our hot takes. Then we get into our scene-by-scene breakdown. We wrap up by offering our final thoughts. Sean, over to you for the summary. All right. Thank you, Ashley. Okay. So we've got two stories going on here. Uh, In the first one, Dream of a Thousand Cats, It starts off, we meet a young kitten living a comfortable domestic life in a quaint English village. As night falls and her owners retire, a street cat appears outside and helps the kitten escape through an upstairs open window. And as the two travel down these village streets and into a graveyard, meeting other cats along the way, we learn that they're going to hear another cat speak. A cat with a very particular message. From atop a statue of an angel, a Siamese cat, played by Sandra Oh, tells a strange and sad story. The cat tells of a comfortable home life with humans until she meets a lover and has kittens that are, according to her owners, not worth anything since they are purebred. Uh, She watches as her kittens are taken from her uh, and driven off. And we see her owner carry the kittens in a sack with a brick to a pond and and he callously throws the kittens in as we hear uh, the Sandra O'Cat express how she could feel her kittens as the cold water took them. So that night, uh, pondering over this injustice, the cat prays, and as she sleeps, she's brought to the dreaming. Uh, There, a skull-headed crow in a field of bones tells her that she may find revelation in a distant cave if she's brave and keeps to the path. She travels through haunted woods, winter mountains, cold streams, and an endless void until she reaches the cave of the Cat of Dreams. She's granted access to the cave's guardians and meets with Dream in cat form, who shows her a world where cats are massive creatures that rule the earth and are weighted on hand and foot by small primitive humans. They're groomed and fed by humans and hunt them for sport as they please. This, says the Cat of Dreams, is the way the world once was, until a human rose up and explained that dreams create the world, and that if enough humans dreamed it, they could make a world where they were not subaltern to cats. Eventually, this prophet convinces enough people, perhaps only a thousand, who all dreamed the same dream, and the world was transformed into one where not only did humans rule, but had always ruled. There had never been an age of cats. The Cat of Dreams tells Sandra O'Cat that she knows what she must do and sends her back to the waking world with his blessing. Sandra O'Cat wraps up her story with a call to action, encouraging all the cats in attendance to dream the world the way it rightfully is, where cats are the masters of the earth. And despite some disbelief among the attendees, the little cat believes. And the next night, her human owners coo over her adoringly as they watch her dreaming, hunting in her sleep. In the second part, 
we meet Richard Maddock, a celebrated one-hit wonder of an author who's struggling with writer's block. After a lecture, he meets with a young doctor from whom he collects a trichinobezoar, a mass of ingested congealed hair once thought to have mystical properties. Maddock needs this very weird and creepy item to trade to one Erasmus Fry, a reclusive and forgotten but once very successful writer. Fry's a vile man, vicious and cynical, but he has something Maddock wants. Fry keeps a muse in captivity, one of the nine mythical goddesses that inspired the arts in ancient Greece. Fry captured her in Greece, using arcane knowledge to bind her to him. For decades, he kept her locked away, abusing her and exploiting her for her gifts. And now Fry intends to trade, trade her to Maddock. Maddock expresses doubt and trepidation, but Fry reminds him she is not human and there is there to be used by humanity. So Fry offers her to Maddock, and even though, uh, even though she says, you know, he's promised to set her free, writers are liars, he tells her, and uh, Maddock accepts. So the muse, we learn, is named Calliope, and at Maddock's home, she demands he set her free. She's a goddess, she says, not a possession. Um, so he promises to release her if she helps him with one book. She refuses. Um, he kind of leaves her locked up. And he tries, you know, begging for her help. Um, she refuses, but after a threatening call from his agent explaining that he's in breach of his contract, the advance he got for his next novel, Richard abandons the pretense of civility and goes upstairs to take from her what she would not give. When we see him again, he's at his computer writing, his shirt unbuttoned, and a long bloody scratch down his cheek. In her room, Calliope prays to the fates who appear before her. Um, they can't help her, they say, nor can the gods, nor the endless. They inform her of Dream's imprisonment and the sleeping sickness his disappearance caused. They also reveal that he and Calliope were once close, having had a child. It seems, however, that their relationship ended poorly, and the two bear bitter feelings for one another. While Calliope yearns for freedom, Maddox's dreams come true. Everything he writes is a hit, uh, first taking the publishing world, then Hollywood by storm. And we follow Maddox as he celebrates his success, positioning himself as this caring, uh, empathetic author with this feminist intersectional viewpoint. You know, a man who uses power wisely and fairly. All the while, of course, he keeps Calliope as a prisoner, exploits her gifts, and refuses to release her just as Erasmus Fry had. So Calliope continues to hope for release, and after once again petitioning Maddock and once again being refused, she happens to glance at a newspaper revealing that the sleeping sickness the fates mentioned uh, to her had ended. The world's been waking up. Calliope puts two and two together, realizing that this means Morpheus is free. She summons him, and boy, old Morpheus is pissed. Uh, he agrees to help her, despite their old grudges. He confronts Maddock, who explains that he can't free her because he needs the ideas, and in a classic Twilight Zone-esque be-careful-what-you-wish-for type deal, Morpheus decides to supply all the ideas he could ever want and more. Maddock breaks down at a lecture, overwhelmed by story ideas. He can't stop thinking about them, saying them, and eventually writing them in his own blood when he doesn't have a pen. Desperate to end his suffering, Maddock frees Calliope. Having been granted release, Morpheus and Calliope meet once again and make a sort of peace with one another, with Morpheus even agreeing to end the curse he put on Maddock, because Calliope says it's necessary for her to forgive him. Maddock's dream-induced madness has ended, but with the loss of Calliope, he realizes that he'll never have another idea to write again. Excellent. Thank you for that summary, Sean. All right, so we are going to skip right over to Ashley, 
for your hot take from this double feature episode. Yes, thank you. So I guess my hot take is that I was raised too much by Homeward Bound for the uh, animated cats to work for me, I think. I, I was looking forward to it initially. Um, and I, I don't, I think it's more the, the voice of the tabby kitten, Rosie Day, who is an adult woman. I think it took me out of it a little bit. I know that it, again, it was, it was animated, you know, you're going to have a bit of distance from the subject, but I, I think I would have, um, not felt so distant or lacking in empathy in this case, if they had actually had a child voicing the young kitten, which they, there are child actors everywhere, mm. you know, I think they would have been able to cast somebody. I think that's a casting change I would have made. As far as the uh, Calliope, um, the Calliope half of the episode was concerned, uh, heartbreaking as always. Uh, really uncomfortable to watch Arthur Darville be evil. Um, having seen him as Rory in Doctor Who, I wasn't thinking I would be able to uh, believe him to do such evil acts. And then he pulled it off really well and really subtly, I would say. So I think the performances in Calliope uh, impressed me more than the voice acting in the Cats episode or Cats half of the episode impressed me when I thought it was going to be flip-flopped. I thought I was going to kind of be bored by more live action interpretation and more impressed by the um, animation. Hmm. All right. Um, my hot take is, you know, I had heard, you know, this was called a bonus episode of television. And I thought that it was going to be entirely self-contained. So the, the cat story was entirely self-contained. You could kind of show that to anybody, you know, like, Maybe they need to, oh, that's the Dream King, maybe. But I thought it did a good, like, anybody, I think, could have watched that and could have, you know, understood it as a story, as a beginning, middle, and end. And, you know, that that's it, right? Um, <clears throat> the Calliope story, though, it felt like it was, I mean, I obviously knew the direction it was going to go. And so I wonder how they were going to do this. But you, um, you do need to see that to know some of, like, what, how Morpheus is feeling because, you know, it, he is relative. It seems like he is relatively new. You know, he, he is, he is relatively new to being released when he visits with Calliope based off the newspaper and, and like kind of how he looks and everything. Um, and so I, I don't, I did think like, you know, how many people actually watch like this extra bonus episode that like dropped, you know, a few weeks after like the first season, you know, got out there because, you know, talking about like that they have a son together, you know, and like, who is that? And just like introducing like a character, you know, like that with knowing that we're not going to get any completion, at least immediately. Um, and so I did think that was a, an interesting choice to set that up. And maybe it was one of those things where, you know, they didn't originally put this out because they weren't sure if they were going to get renewed for season two. And they ended up putting it out before they knew, but maybe they had a good idea that they were going to, because it definitely leads you like, oh, right. Like we know we have the Lucifer side of it, but you know, that could also be like done, you know? Um, but this is definitely like, oh, like there's another there, like these people had, you know, a son and like that, that is just kind of out there. Um, and it's the Greek hero of legend. Orpheus. Orpheus. So yeah, so pretty cool. Pretty cool stuff. Sean. You know, they're on the, for the last storyline the back half of season one there's a lot i was critical of um some of it i felt like 
didn't work. And then some I thought was kind of, you know, poorly adapted. Like I mentioned Rosa's character and we all kind of had some Lyda issues. Um, But I, you know, can say that with this episode, I am entirely back on board. I like unequivocally really loved it. Um, To me, it kind of hit those heights that uh, haven't otherwise been hit since, you know, episode six. Um, and I think that comes down to a few thing, a few things. Uh, I think they stuck a landing absolutely on the adaptations, you know, they, um, sort of hewed very close to the original comics in terms of like the narrative, if not, you know, visually, visually it's very different. Um, and I, you know, I haven't always understood throughout the adaptation, like why in most cases I have, but there've been some times where I've been like, ah, you know, why adapt this scene word for word and leave this scene out entirely? You know, there's all sorts of considerations that could come in there. I'm I'm sure there can be, you know, any number of things. Um, but I feel like this was just expertly adapted. It, 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 really worked for me. The few changes that they did make, um, all made sense to me and seemed very like thoughtfully, uh, done. And when they chose to just, you know, straight up bring the comic to life, I thought it was absolutely successful, uh, which is tough. Cause it's like dream of a thousand cats is one of my favorite single issues of any comic book ever. Um, so this is, you know, sort of high praise for me. Uh, I, I, really enjoyed the animation. Um, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about it, presumably. It's like an animation of excess in a lot of ways. And it's very different from Kelly Jones's pencils. Kelly Jones, who illustrated the Dream of a Thousand Cats uh, comic book story. You know, Kelly Jones is like one of my... One, one of my favorite pencilers uh, from when I was a kid, because I first encountered his work uh, on Batman covers uh, of the mid 90s. And it was like so exaggerated and like gothic and theatrical, but in a much different way than other 90s comic books, which were all, you know, very big muscles and big guns and tiny waists. And Jones's work was, it was just as exaggerated, but in this very different way. And so I always really appreciated that um, because it just showed me that you could, what you could accomplish with a different style of illustration in this like era of a sort of, you know, kind of depressing monotony. Um, So, you know, Dream of a Thousand Cats, I think is really some of his best work in the comic. Um, If you, if you read that book, I mean, the fact that he's able to convey emotion with these largely like realistic illustrations of cats was very impressive to me. Um, so it was kind of surprising to me that even though they took the animation in a much different direction than those original Jones pencils, I still absolutely loved it. And then perhaps kind of more than anything, I just, I really love episodic television. I like that these were largely self-contained stories. You know, I'll always love those like 30 or 60 minute episode structures that are like a, like a short story or a, you know, like one act play or something, you know, that's just a personal preference. You're a big, like NCIS guy. <laughs> well, no, Chicago I've never seen fire, <laughs> like, all those. Okay. I mean, I was thinking Blue Star Bloods. Trek. 
Twilight Zone, X Files. Those those are the kind of television shows I love. Yes, I, I'm 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 out of my depth with the with the procedurals that like my CSI Miami. Yeah, yeah, no, can't the, the say I've ever okay. seen it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so th- this this whole episode was sort of like a like Neil Gaiman presents the Twilight Zone to me, and I absolutely love that. All right, well. You know, my cat just walked by doing something kind of weird. So I'm, I'm going to go make sure that she's not plotting my uh, my doom. And we'll be right back. All right. So for our scene by scene breakdown, we're actually going to start with taking a look at the animation and how you all felt about it. Uh, you know, this is the first time that we see something like that in the series and thought it'd be good. I mean, it's a different story. It's a one off story uh, and it was animated. So I was just kind of wondering, you know, Sean, you gave us a bit in your hot take you know, about enjoying it, you know, and maybe some initial concerns because of your love for kind of the original one. Uh, So I thought maybe we could tee up Ashley on the uh, animation side. How do you feel about animation, Ashley? I usually like animation quite a bit, Mm. which is why I had been stoked for this episode. And I don't know if maybe I'm the opposite of Sean now hearing his opinion, if especially when you haven't set up an episodic series, having then one standalone narrative in the midst of a continual narrative just kind of threw me off and threw me out of the game. Um, and as far as the, this episode was concerned, I thought there were stills that I would have captured and thought this is gorgeous. I would love a print of this. Um, but it really didn't capture me until the prophet. So the, the cat Sandra O's, character was on her own journey to the dreaming and to the cave to meet Morpheus, Mm. um, that it, that it really drew me in, even though I knew it was going to happen. Um, I think once, once we went into a realm where it felt suitable to have this really odd sort of, I don't, I don't know what, what frame rate this animation was, was being, um, presented because I don't know a lot about film in general, but um, the flow of the animation, I felt like it suited another realm as opposed to trying to depict quote unquote real life that we've already experienced in the rest of the series. Mm. So like, why is it animated now? I just felt a little disjointed to me as far mm. as the actual quality of the animation. I thought it was very pretty, but again, um, it, it just felt like it suited some other transport of some kind to another space time realm etc than to um demonstrate the rest of the narrative would you have liked a mocap meryl street cat version (laughs) i don't i don't want to you know i would really like to avoid um another uh rendition of cats the musical not looking for that uh i just i maybe just a transition in between you know like live Mm. actions like i said Mm. homeward bound (laughs) into an animated sort of dreamlike sequence i think would have been cool um and and again i think it mostly has to do with my dislike of the voice for the younger cat because i found Mm. it so grating i did like i was just as moved um, as I would, was reading the comic when her kittens are drowned, like my husband and I were clutching at each other when that happened. It's, it's horrifying, but yeah, that just, that little kitten voice was just grating on me. And I think it mm. just took me out. It was a little babyish. It did take me like, I, I it caught me off guard at first. Yeah. I, I, 
took me a, a little while to get used to, but I did mm-hmm. after a while. It's just, yeah, when you first hear it, you're like, whoa, yeah, it's like, <laughs> that's okay. the sounds we're making? Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's surprising to me. It really is how I how much I enjoy this. I mean, it's a very elaborate uh, animation process. Um, Hisko Holsing was the director mm-hmm. of yeah. this sequence and sort of masterminded the animation efforts and you know from what i've read they're doing you know they're doing live action like a sort of on location shooting and then they're doing uh 3d computer modeling of of the cats and then they're also rotoscoping that and doing sort of like classical 2d animation on top of that and then behind all of that are these oil painted backgrounds Okay. Um, so there's just so much effort going on there and like so many different things um, that it does add up to produce this very like sort of dreamlike otherworldly quality. Mm-hmm. Um, but <clears throat> I thought they, in particular, the backgrounds I thought were just like absolutely gorgeous. Those oil painted backgrounds of the graveyard and, um, you know, uh, her her journey to the cave of the cat of dreams the one thing with the animation that i was very torn up torn about i even got used to the rotoscoping because i don't like i feel like rotoscoping has its place but i'm not sure crazy about it could you give another example of rotoscoping because maybe i just wasn't connecting the dots as far as my exposure to it Mm, yeah so the first place i saw it was um Richard Linklater's Waking Life. New to me. Or the uh, the Aha Take On Me uh, video oh, is sort of like thank that. thank you. Funny that that's yeah. the thing I'm familiar with. Okay, got it. Yeah, it's, it's, they're just, they're, they're filming actual people and then they're drawing over that. Okay. Um, that's sort of the, my understanding of, my very basic understanding of the rotoscoping process. Um, and they're doing all of that here Plus all of that computer animation, all the regular 2D animation, all the oil painting. Like, it's just so, so very elaborate. But, you know, I mean, Neil Gaiman has all, has in, in the Sandman comic, he's, he always pushed our art forward, you know, in the medium. He tried, he encouraged people to try different things. He wrote to their strengths, right? He they like, mm-hmm. they like, you know, always um, sort of swung for the fences there. And so it was yeah. kind of nice to see that done. Um, in the, in the animated adaptation too. And the one thing I was kind of torn on was like, well, let me ask you all this. Would you have, what, would you have liked their mouths to move? <laughs> a, li- a little bit, I think hmm. maybe. It, I, I, not really, I thought about this a lot. Yeah. I, I, no, no, I think that's cause I thought they were, you know, they like they're cats and they're, they are. They're speaking and they're they're not speaking. Yeah, I thought it was, yeah. You know, I thought it was all kind of communicating that way anyway, so. See, I I think it is. I just, it's nice when you have a close-up of somebody to see, you know. Expression. Movement when they're communicating, yes. Yeah, because, yeah, the the prophet's so calm when she's like, yes, I felt the last heartbeats of my children. I was like, you're so chill about it. I mean, Sean, it sounds like you're being a little discriminatory against telepathic people, so just watch out for that. Just uh, okay. Out that. I mean, you know, yeah. Jean that, Grey's that, coming for you. That's all I'm saying. 
yeah, uh, that, that's that is important to keep in mind. Yes, there's <laughs> there's room for everyone, really. But but yeah, the and then I like went and watched a bunch of. I was like, do I like when they're mindless movies? I watched like little short videos from like Lady and the Tramp and uh, Oliver and Company, mm-hmm. and then like the Lion King and the live action Lion King or that you know computer Lion King. I don't know. I didn't see it. I just watched like a couple mm-hmm. quick videos of it. I was like, yeah, I think I do like Miles moving. I think I'm just into, uh, you know, if we're, if we're gonna anthropomorphize them, let's let's do it. Well, right, and I guess like but my that's thought a very is, small quibble. but now that Ben has brought it up, if they could communicate telepathically, you think they wouldn't have nearly as much trouble organizing on this whole concept of like retaking the Earth, reclaiming the Earth again. Maybe it's really close range telepathy. <laughs> Their, ra- their radio signal's just a little off. Yeah, just a few. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have to figure they're doing something with, like, little eye movements and, like, tail twitches and, like, pheromones and things like that. Mm. And then, like, mm-hmm. the telepathy is the closest equivalent we can get to it. That's mm-hmm. sort of how I'm uh, justifying it in my head. I like it. I like Fair it. Enough. All right, so why don't we talk about the first half of this uh, first story. So um, we see this little baby kitten wakes up. Sean gave us a great summary of this. You know, ends up seeing a, a nice, like, um... Tommy cat outside ends up sneaking out in the middle of the night, uh, walks and hears the, uh, the prophets, uh, tell the story up until, um, you know, about what happened to her about feeling thick. She thinking that, Oh, we're still in control. And, but realizing we're actually not in control because as we've mentioned, um, her kittens get taken from her and drowned by the worst human in the world. Um, and then we just see her fall asleep in front of the fire. So, I, I will say, I know I normally don't jump in on these. I had thought about um, having Jenny watch this one, just this just this first one. Like, oh, the cat one is cute. I'm sure she'll probably like it. She likes cats. And then I was like, Ab- actually, absolutely not. She is not going to watch this. She's not going to see four kittens put into a bag with a brick. I don't even want to watch that. Um, I felt bad that Sean and Ashley had to watch it, but you did. So... You can take this in any direction, but I thought you all might have thoughts on that. I, I just made Joy watch it with me while we were eating dinner like 20 minutes ago. So that's sort of our different approaches uh, relationship-wise. Yeah. Um, well, the one thing I just want to call out quickly here is the amazing setup to this story, which I think, you know, Neil Gaiman's greatest strength as a storyteller, in my opinion, is his like setups. And it's those, I've talked about this before, those kind of like what if moments that just like spark the imagination and just make you want to have to hear more. And this is like a perfect example of that. It's like, what if all the cats in town, you know, domestic and stray, tomcat and kitten snuck into a graveyard at night to hear a cat tell a story? What kind of story would she tell? You know, mm. and that's such mm-hmm. an amazing setup. And that's what we get. It's, it's great. Um, even though, you know, the story itself is very, like, so it's very, like, classic, like, hero's journey story. You know, cat, like, leaves home on a mission, you know, wants something, goes through, like, some kind of trial, you know, gains some knowledge, returns, right? You know, it's, 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 it's a very normal thing. It's just done in that very sort of Neil Gaiman way that, uh, that very much appealed to me. Did either of you hold your breath when the kitten leapt from the window onto the bridge? Because that deeply <laughs> stressed me out. I did not. They really, you know, I, 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 I mean, they, that, 
uh, shift in perspective where you see sort of the, you see how that fragile, frail little kitten trying to yeah. make that leap and they give you the top down camera view and you're seeing how far the ground is below. It was really effective to like, yes, it was make very you catch effective. your breath. Definitely. And the Tomcat's yes. just like, yeah, you need to work on your balance and your landing. And it's just like, how callous are you? Could have died. <laughs> oh, I loved it because he said, he said, good jump. Need to work on the landing. And I was like, that's great. That's great advice. This, uh, this is like some, this is that uncle energy we've been talking about throughout the mm, whole series. Yeah. Corinthian, <laughs> this freaking Tomcat trying to yeah. get young people to do dangerous <laughs> things. True uncle magic. Oh, yeah. But speaking of kittens, Any, I think anything else those, on this for, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I think I think the the horrible drowning sequence of kittens in a bag, they got the audio right on that for sure. Like that, I wasn't mm-hmm. sure how they were gonna do, um, but to have that perspective of the bag sinking and the, the meowing still continuing, and then that right. you know being echoed later, I thought was actually very effective, and really stressed me out. Yeah, I feel like I you know I I I have a bit of a hard time buying the drowning kittens thing in like 20 you know 2022 2023 it just seems like 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 i the british get up to some weird stuff sometimes i that seems more like a 70s thing to me i don't i don't know i i just i I can't i can't imagine anyone thinking that that's like okay at this point you know yeah i i don't know there i can save that opinion for another time pat you can cut this um but i i did find it and this is probably where the the animation was still a little off to me was when he was leaving with the bag of kittens and the wife was chasing after him trying trying quote unquote heavier quotes to stop him but like <laughs> didn't even bother trying to like actually take the bag get in the car like nothing and do they only have right. one car i'm surely like there was a way she could have actually effectively stopped him and it just didn't it just seemed off like the timing was weird and it was just like oh well mm. Gonna go drown a bag of cats again. He's just gonna do what Wait, he's gonna uh, do. But I wonder if that you was can tell at some point. I think in the Victorian age, it was it was somewhat more. Um, I do think that it was. Um, yeah, there's definitely something else there going on in that relationship because you even see like once they're back, once he's back and they're sitting there, he mm-hmm. says, "You know, who would want four brats running around?" And she yeah, says, oh, yeah, "Like, I oh, I guess." And it's like, ah. This woman wants children. He does not want children and is imposing that here. Like, you can definitely tell that. Yeah, it just, again, with that animation where they're outside in the in the car park and everything, it just, yeah, there yeah. was that weird timing sequence that felt mm. like, how enabling are you? But I agree, that was a good line that was included in there to kind of inform the relationship. I guess maybe yep. it's just, I can't imagine being in a relationship like that, so I just yeah. got angry at, at her for not doing more. Totally. Totally. I don't think there's anyone in my life who would let me drown a bag of kittens. No, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the only other thing I want to call out from this section is I thought they did a really good job with their quick cat love story. It's just like you see the the Sandra mm. O cat and then the other cat's outside and she's like inside and she like mm-hmm. looks at him and then she kind of like turns away and she looks back at him and gives him this like long slow blink and I was like oh yeah I get it those cats are hot for each other this is I don't even know really what that looks like but it would look like this well and it's so funny too that was actually something I thought they did really well was cats do communicate affection and comfort by a slow blink to other cats right. and to their owners oh. um, so like and infrequently, like our cats will come in the living room 
And I now that I know this, I do this. They'll like wait for me. I'll look at them. And if I slow blink, then they will sit on the couch with me. If I do not do that and I just stare at them, they will walk and find somewhere else to sit. Try it sometime. People have cats? Mm -hmm. Try it. Yeah. Fun fact. I don't have a cat. I'm just going to walk around the neighborhood slowly blinking (laughs) at all the cats I see. So the Siamese cat falls asleep and ends up in the dream realm. She is greeted by a skeleton crow. And is told that she can get revelation from the dream or the cat of dreams, the dream of cats. So we see her making her way through all these different areas, first through a boneyard, then a place where it's so cold, every step was pain. Then in the wetness where her paws are numb. She also goes through a place where she hears her kittens meowing for her that died. Uh, So a very arduous journey. And then eventually we see her at the gates into the palace where Dream is. And we recognize this because we see the hippogriff, the dragon, and the griffin are there. And we've seen seen those three in other places just outside of the castle into the inner sanctum of Dream. Our cat then goes inside and meets with the cat version of Morpheus, where she learns that cats used to run the world, not humans, until the humans dreamt that they had always been in charge and that humans were always on top. And that's when everything changed. And it has always been that way because of the way that the humans dreamed it. She then goes, and this is why she is telling the story, because she is trying to get at least a thousand cats because it may only need that many to make this dream come true. So that way cats can be on top again. So Sean, let's kick it over to you. What, uh, what do you want to pull out of here? Well, yeah, you mentioned it. I just want to like shout out to the, uh, hippogriff, the wyvern and the griffin, the guardians of dreams castle. Um, this is the first time we've seen them brought to life. Right. And, Right, like they haven't, they haven't heard. We haven't heard them speak. We haven't. Uh, mm. um, yeah, maybe we haven't heard them anything speak. like that. Yeah, we've seen yeah. them move. Yeah. Did they move? Just not brief? Talk. Were they kind of moving? We've in seen one them of those... move. Yeah, yeah, in one of okay. the things. That's about it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, but I just think it's. I love those characters. Um, they're a lot of fun, and they're so like gruff and take their jobs so seriously. They're just great, and so I'm really happy to see them brought to life here and they sort of look like stone gargoyles um mm. you know they've got some like crumbling stone surface on them and it was a nice interaction you know little character moment for our our uh sandra O oh, cat right because she just just kind of like hisses at them and she's like ready to throw down with these like mythical beasts and we also got um a nice uh line there uh from the wyvern that says as she's going inside the cave, he tells her dreams have a price. And I think that is, you know, that could sum up some of the thematic concerns of the entire episode Mm. very well, both the Calliope portion and the, this dream of the thousands cats portion, because, you know, this is, and I'll, I'll get more into this later, but this is an episode that I think does, um, 
interact quite well, even though these were separate comic book issues, they did, they were back to back issues when they were mm. originally published. And I think they, they speak nicely with each other. And that idea of dreams have a price. And, you know, is this a price that you're going to pay or are you going to try to cheat your way around it? Right. And those, those, mm. that's, that's kind of the different, mm. the, the different perspectives, some of the characters we deal with, um, the different perspectives they have. So so I like that line there, and I think it's very central to understanding of the complete episode. Ashley, how about you? Yeah, after having heard Sean describe how this animation was created, I think this is where the those oil painting backdrops really suit well for the episode being on this journey mm-hmm. and it becoming more grand and more epic over time. I think maybe that's the thing is it didn't feel like there was really a scenic break between real life and the streaming apart from different landscapes, but it was also equally grand that I didn't feel like I was traveling anywhere new as far as depth was concerned. So having those grand oil painting backdrops for this half of the episode, I think really, mm-hmm went well and now thinking back um i i i can appreciate it better than i had one other little thing i want to call out here was there's a line uh i loved i mean i i i very much liked the dream and and interaction like in the cave thought the cave was very cool dream looked very cool um Mm -hmm. i guess they probably wouldn't have like traditional animation cells like you could get from like an old cartoon or something right because it's produced in a different way but it would be great to have like an animation cell of 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 that interaction between that massive dream cat cloaked in shadow and there's bones and skulls all over in his Mm, cave uh and the the little siamese cat out in front um but you know they have their interaction and one of the things i really liked was um when the when the cat is you know, going out of the world just to, to, to spread, uh, her message. She's describing, you know, her interaction with him. And she says, I had seen the soft underbelly of what he told me. Uh, and I love that mm. line, you know, it's a little more pointed of a line than it was in the comic. It was just the, in the comic, it's just something like, Oh, I'd seen the underside of what he told me, but I love, you know, I've seen the soft underbelly of what he told me as a turn of phrase that basically means I understood, you know, what he meant, what his implication was, mm-hmm. but it's for, you know, a creature that it's a carnivorous hunter. So I love that. Right. It, so it seems to be fitting their, their, you know, their lifestyle that you would describe things in such a way. And I thought that was great. Thanks, Sean. Anything else on the first story before we move over to Calliope? One last little thing is that I, I also wanted to shout out the score here. I thought the, I thought the scoring was very effective um, throughout the episode really, but it's always a, it's always a really big part of animation. And I just noticed it here, um, you know, and noticed how much it enhanced the experience of the, this part of the story um, overall, especially like there's a little like final sting with the dreaming cat at the end, you know, it's, it's just such, it's a little great, like little twilight zone moment. Like she's dreaming of, of hunting people. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's so, so yeah. I, I was going to withhold my comment, but now that you've brought it up, that's the very thing that took, again, 
kept me from taking this half of the episode too seriously because oh, it I made me it. laugh so hard. Oh, I was great. like, oh, that's right. This little kitten's going to get me someday. And it just made me laugh, that little sting that you were talking about. I do agree. Yeah. The score was beautiful. But it was just that last little bit that I'm like, <laughs> watch out. Yeah, that's the part that seemed very Twilight Zone to me. And because I have so okay. much love for the Twilight Zone, like the 60s oh, Twilight enough. Zone, like I think that's just, I just yeah. Well, I, I just glanced behind me, and it looks like the Beans is trying to fall asleep. So I'm going to go wake her up real quick, and uh, we'll be right back. So the next story, Calliope. We were introduced very early on to our main protagonist in this short story, Richard Murdoch who's a struggling author after his breakaway success. And we see him struggling to write, being hounded to get his draft in, get something, his agent's bothering him. The people that uh, the publishers are bugging his agent and bugging him. And he really seems lost. And this, when we first meet him in this episode, but as luck has it, he knows Erasmus Fry, who is an aging author, and he is able to get a Bezor for Erasmus Fry in exchange for something that will help him write better. He learns definitely at first to his like astonishment and horror, but not a whole lot of astonishment and horror that Erasmus had the youngest and the ninth muse calliope uh for about the last 60 years imprisoned and has been using calliope as a muse for all of the writing that he has done and so we will end this first scene with uh, murdoch taking ownership of calliope and moving her in to his house so ashley from the first half of the story what do you want to talk about? Um, I, again, I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about Arthur Darville playing uh, Richard Maddock, but I, I think the introduction of him teaching this class and it being a very basic sort of writing seminar and him having like his sort of favorite students like Nora um, wanting to help him out and like curry favor with this author uh, was really effective. Like this was this was a familiar sort of situation to me. It was mm. a familiar scene to me, and I think mm. that it didn't feel too forced. I think sometimes when you see academia portrayed on screen, it feels like yes, leather bound books, academia. <laughs> welcome to Hogwarts. And this didn't feel like that. It felt totally <laughs> realistic. Um, and I like the fact that we have this introduction of of Nora as this. Uh, side character I thought it suited well and this Nora is the one that brings him the bezoir um, and like basically says like it would have been thrown in the trash anyway like I just thought that that was kind of an interesting sort of exchange um, mm -hmm. but I liked mm -hmm. they included that and that they they included that relationship to then come back to later I thought that that was a f an effective inclusion um, so I, I appreciate that detail um, especially considering um you have this student who admires the work of this author mm. who was a student that admired the work of another author or author um, and seeing uh, what one offers to those that we admire, not uh, disingenuinely, but 
because they have something we wish uh, we had. And so then seeing that sort of like cycle itself through, uh, as well as being kind of an interesting discussion on gender, um, you know, not to mm. get too much into that, but I just thought it was kind of a, it was, um, it was an inclusion that I think did more work than maybe they had initially realized. So I just, mm. I really thought that that was kind of clever. Mm. That I hadn't really thought about it at all, but that was a conscious choice, right? Like that's not something that was in the comic series. Right. Exactly. So yeah, that, that was an inclusion just, just for this. So yeah, that I, I, I had not, it hadn't occurred to me why at all. And I hadn't really thought about it uh, much deeper than, 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 than it just being like, oh, we got to add in a little more plot and characters mm. than just like two people. And it, yeah, now that you put it in a, a bit more perspective, that's very helpful. Oh, one thing I want to call out from that first scene is yeah. Richard's first line being you can't force a character to do something just because it's easier <laughs> I thought that was such a hilarious like way to start off this story <laughs> yes, considering absolutely. his arc and the whole thing that happens in it that is wonderful <laughs> and the, the slide in the background reads controlling the narrative <laughs> yeah Sean great. what yep. else did but, you have from this first portion it's perfect well, really quick, I just wanted to ask Ashley, uh, who who is the the actor, and how were you familiar with him? Um, he played Rory in uh, Doctor Who, and so Rory is that one of the doctors. No, he's it's one of the who's. A, it's, it's better companions boyfriend. <laughs> so ah. uh, <laughs> in the in the Matt Smith run of Doctor Who, um, his companion is Amy, and Amy has a boyfriend. Mm-hmm very hapless named Rory and Mm. Rory. I mean, truly like bumbling head over heels, heels for Amy, but like kind of useless. Whereas Amy's like the super adventurous one, always rushing off into danger Mm. with the doctor. And Rory loves her so much that he's trying to protect her in the best way he knows how. And he's not cruel. He's not like one of those idiot bruiser boyfriends. He's just like the kind of guy who would trip over his own shoelaces. And then he Mm. has this incredible heroic character arc throughout the entire series, um, the run of Matt Smith's doctor in which he literally becomes a centurion that guards Amy as she's like trapped. Um, And he like (laughs) protects her from like all space and time um, and waits for forever for her to be able to, to reemerge. And so then it's such a change then to have him play this tragic figure who, you know, succumbs to his own greed and cruelty. That's part of why I was so set up for like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to believe this. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was, that's why I was so impressed with his performance uh, because he did so in a way to me that felt subtle and nuanced as opposed to I am evil now. Ha ha. Twirly mustache. Mm. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, well, I also want to shout out an actor here, which is uh, Derek Jacoby, who played Erasmus Fry. Um, I think he did an amazing job. I, 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 I loved how just, you know, what a jerk he was. Um, I knew him, the actor, not Erasmus Fry, I knew the actor primarily from gladiator he was uh he was in the movie gladiator yeah. uh from like a million years ago now um but he's been in a ton of stuff he's done a ton of he's done a lot of shakespeare he also did doctor who uh mm-hmm. he was in an episode of frasier i don't know um <laughs> yeah. but he was 
<laughs> he was also apparently in the running to play uh, Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs alongside, oh. it was him against uh, Daniel Day-Lewis and, of course, Anthony Hopkins. Mm. Um, yeah, so, and then huh. I, was, you know, I was doing a little bit of reading about him because I just really enjoyed his performance in this, um, but I, saw, I found that he'd actually played a, a scumbag artist before in a hmm. biopic of the painter Francis Bacon called Love is the Devil. Uh, he oh. played Francis Bacon. Yes. Oh, that's um, good. We, I know. I really want to see it. I've never seen the movie. Uh, I really, really want to see it now. He plays Francis Bacon, and a young um, pre-James Bond Daniel Craig plays the... Uh, the guy who tried to rob Francis Bacon's house, broke into his house. Francis Bacon caught him there and then was just like, why don't you just stay here with me? And so he was his like lover. Uh, and they yeah. had this like horrible, wow. horribly like um, cruel, like sadistic relationship yeah. um, between the two of them. And the fact that there's a movie about this, I'm very excited to see it. Uh, I'm always fascinated by Bacon and his work. So I might watch that tonight. <laughs> Ah, Tilda Swinton's in it too. Sees a host oh, yeah? movie oh. night. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, but cool. I, you know, I, I, I loved. I thought he, you know, he played his part with such ferocity and resentment mm-hmm. toward Calliope, uh, and I mm-hmm. thought that was really effective. You know, um, it's like. Everything he says to her is with such viciousness. And it's like, why? Because, I mean, she's his captive. She's done everything he's asked. Why hate her so much? And, you know, I think the answer is that it wouldn't be possible without her. None of what he has comes Mm -hmm. from him. Uh, He didn't pay the price uh, for his dream, right? He let her pay it. And he'll never be able to escape that shame of you know, ultimately not being responsible for 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 the work he's taking credit for. So this was uh, Homer's muse, uh, uh, you know, in the, the canon, muse, yeah. right? <laughs> and we're you know thousands of years removed from Homer and are still reading Homer, mm-hmm. whereas Erasmus Fry, it seems like within his lifetime, everybody forgot about him, and it just got me thinking, like, okay, so. You know, like, what does a mute, like, what can a muse do? Like, do you have to have any innate talents for a muse to bring something out? Um, like, b- before we started recording, everybody, a little peek behind the curtain, I was doing some terrible um, accent work reading some high school um, uh, theater that I was in and mentioning that I'm, like, tone deaf. But, like, if I had a captive muse, like, you know, I would have had originally thought, like, oh, well, you have to have some base level of skill to actually get anything out of the muse. But I feel mm. like what they're trying to tell us in Erasmus is, like, you could have zero baseline of skill, but capture the muse is so powerful that in your lifetime you could be successful, but then you're not going to be remembered. Whereas, like, Homer obviously had the skill set and had the muse and was receiving the muse's um, – um, however you want to call it, like specialness in like the right way versus like the wrong way. But yeah, I kind of got my head around that for a bit wondering like, yeah, if I had a muse, what could happen? Well, and I think in this case as well, like audience audiences have changed, you know, Homer had a Mm. captive audience. It's not like you have, you know, uh, contemporary publishing or, um, 
you don't have the publishing industry in Homer's time like you do in both Erasmus and Maddox's time. Um, and those those audiences change. And like he later says, like, if you can do anything, please, you know, bring to reprint that. I forget the, the name of the book that mm-hmm. he wrote. Here comes a candle. candle one. Thank you. Um, so you might you might be granted success. You might be granted skill, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be for everybody. Um, because, again, you don't have that same sort of captive audience that homer would have yeah yeah quick embarrassing story um please (laughs) so back in the myspace days uh you could on your profile list off your favorite books and Mm -hmm. i thought i was being so very smart and clever by only listing fictional books in my on my myspace profile page uh among them being Erasmus Fries, Here Comes a Candle. <laughs> oh my gosh. Did anybody oh, you notice? Mean fictional books. Not Yes. Not yeah. Books yeah. that don't actually exist. Yes. Yeah. yeah <laughs> not yeah, books yeah, yeah. of fi- okay. works of fiction. That's very clever. Very clever. <laughs> Did anybody ever notice? Uh I think maybe like one person noticed one of the books on there. Yeah. But um that is just me being like, I'm so smart. Oh, isn't that clever? But, yeah. That's hilarious. <laughs> Teenagers are the best. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Excellent. All right, let's move into our next scene. I did want to just put a quick note in that we are going to be talking about sexual violence and assault somewhat briefly in this next section. If that's not for you and you just want to check out, uh, there'll be uh, uh, liner notes that'll let you know when you can skip forward uh, to when we are wrapping up this episode. So Richard has uh, taken Calliope back home, and after struggling to write anything uh, decides to take the easy way out and goes up and rapes Calliope in order to get some of her power. So that way he can write Uh, as Sean mentioned in the summary, we then see him unbuttoned disheveled already on chapter three, but with a nice cut down his cheek indicating to us that this was something that was taken with force and not something that was consensually given from there. We see that this next book is even a bigger deal than his first one. It's already being adapted into a screenplay. There's a bidding war. Everything seems to be going so well for Richard at this point. He even changes his name to just be Rick. And I think that's like the douchiest thing he does by far. (laughs) (laughs) Next, we see Calliope, who is getting more and more desperate to be free, reaches out to her mothers, the fates, who come and tell her that there is nothing that she can that they can do to help. But they do indicate that maybe the Endless could help. Unfortunately, at this point, Morpheus is trapped. And while an ex-lover of hers, they did not part on good terms, even though they have a child together. Calliope still decides to pray to Morpheus and see if she can get any help from him. So, Sean, what do you want to talk about from this middle chunk of the second story? Yeah, well, I suppose we should start with the assault stuff because, you know, it's handled very differently in the comic. And I think it's handled Mm -hmm. much Mm -hmm. better, um, honestly. In the TV show or in the comic? In the TV show. Yeah, okay. 
I think, you know, it, it's difficult to do stuff like this because a lot of the violence that happens in the show and on TV in general is pretty like outlandish violence. It's things that for the most part mm. aren't happening in people's lives, but people are assaulted and exploited and dehumanized like all the time in real life right. and probably some viewers of the Sandman. So I felt like they took that into account and handled it in a, in a way that seemed very thoughtful and mm. um, they were able to be, to, 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 get their point across without having like a like graphic rape scene like the comic does. Yeah. The um, comic's really, yeah. The comic's really hard to like yeah. read that portion of it. It's definitely, yeah. it's very violent. It's very, yeah. Uh, it also makes you hate him much more. Mm -hmm. I will say yes. that was one thing that I did struggle with a bit. I was like, I mean, is he that bad of a guy? Like he's keeping her locked up. That's kind of bad in the comic. Like he's a terrible person. Like it's, it's very easy to see that. Yeah, that's like the first thing he does is attack. He right. gets her home and then attacks her right, right away. And it doesn't exactly. even have any connection. He's not even really thinking about her gifts at all. He's just like, uh, just this power. is not, yeah. this is an object of, for my enjoyment right. and I'm going to treat right. it as such. Um, here you see him, you know, there's, he's trying to justify, he's trying mm -hmm. to hang on to his concept of himself as a good person. And, you know, that front that he continues to put up as, as right. his, you know, as, as his fortunes rise and all that. But that call comes from his agent who's, you know, reminding him that you're going to owe all this money that you've probably already spent if you don't get something written. And then mm -hmm. when, he, when he's actually pushed you see his 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 pretense his moral pretenses drop and you see you know him go for the the, the that, that sort of very base uh uh game right. he's just gonna take what he wants yep 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 ashley yeah i i agree i do think it was much better depicted in the show than in the comic book in an interview with alan heinberg um one of the showrunners uh he even mentioned that the the panels depicting the rape in the comic, Neil Gaiman didn't want drawn ever. He didn't want that actually immortalized in the comic book as it was. Um, so it seems like they went back to Neil Gaiman's original vision for that narrative to not have it mm. shown, which I really mm. appreciate for many reasons, but also because I think it is just better storytelling because it's more believable for this character. Right. To have convinced right. himself that he is a good guy, capital G, capital G. Um, and, you know, he's just going to do this once to get over this sort of slump and then after never again. But then he gets becomes so addicted to the success that it brings him more than he expected, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, to have gained from this sequel. Because when is a sequel ever like better than the original? Very rarely, I would say. Um, right that uh that he can't help himself um and it's interesting then when he tries to to woo her in other ways and that it's just not the same he like doesn't get it that this isn't like a consensual right. relationship that, that they're not like right. married or even dating or anything but he thinks that he can somehow right. salvage uh quote unquote what they have which is nothing um is is just a very interesting and also you know tale as old as time it's just you know mm. it's it's different when it's a muse and an immortal being right. as opposed to like a yeah. human woman. Did you notice that in the scene with the fates that at least I didn't see the fates shifting? Mm -hmm. They didn't. Yeah. 
Yeah, because yeah. which would make sense. Like they wouldn't, be, and they're in like white, and it's like a pastel like background. And I I like that because like they're just coming. To, like we can't help. We're we're not trying to be sneaky. Like or any like you know we're not having you ask three questions and all that kind of stuff. It's like well we can't do anything for you. We can just give you a small bit of comfort by saying hi essentially. Yeah. Um, but I like that how like you know they weren't shifting back and forth. It wasn't quick cuts. It was like oh yeah you could always see all three of them and they're just talking to her as mm-hmm. the crone, the mother, and the maiden, right? Yeah, and. And yet they still do their cryptic knowledge thing, right? Of like course, they still drop <laughs> that, oh, yeah, and by the way, your old boyfriend is in uh, in prison now. And there's this sleeping sickness all around to kind of nudge, nudge, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> because right, that's right. the piece of information that's crucial to her later on. Correct. Right. And she picks up on it. But we, we've seen that sort of um, groundedness with the fates with Rose's encounter of the fates. So I do think there's something Mm -hmm. interesting to be said about the fates being sort of anchored in their femininity and their relationship to Mm -hmm. other persons that have an understanding of their femininity or, or are in touch with their femininity um, Mm -hmm. that I find really compelling and, and done very well in this show that I think is, you know, much more clever than people realize as far as staging is concerned. Yeah, I, I think the work with the fates is probably one of like the top things that come out of here because they're yeah. so difficult conceptually to even like think about mm-hmm. and just kind of understand like, well, like, do they do anything, you know, or like, are they, do they not do anything? Like, do they just put, you know, in I, you know, I, if we get a, we're getting a second season, it'll be nice to see kind of how they continue to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, they show up actually fairly frequently like this is their fourth appearance i think in the first season and yet it feels really special each time it always feels very momentous it's never a casual thing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah that's a good point yeah it is impressive that they've managed to make that character not a gimmicky sort of fantasy role yeah and not a deus machina type thing. Right. You know, it's just like, no, like, this is just their job. Like, they're just doing their job. <laughs> right. Like, their universal job. <laughs> I, I wonder what they're doing at home. Like, I wonder what they're doing when they're not cryptically delivering information to their mm. petitioners, you know. Yeah. Make- I guess they're just, like, weaving the loom of fate, right? Like, that's kind of yep. what they're doing see the, we- the rest of the time. Yeah, I think... Yeah, you see that at some point in the comics, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Interesting. Okay, that's what they're doing. I was, I was just imagining them like making cozy soups, catching up with one <laughs> another on their day. Watching Gilmore Girls together. Yeah, exactly. You know, something like that. <laughs> you know, girl stuff. I like it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, I like that too. Yeah. <laughs> All right, anything else in this second section? Uh, well, first mention of Orpheus. That's, that's, that's big. True. Um, you know? I don't think there's too much more to say about it right now, but we know now, you know, this is where we're finding out that 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 Morpheus has at least one child and that it's the, you know, Orpheus of myth. And that's a big that's a big drop. You know, it'll be important. That is. This is the point in which anyone that has listened to a cast recording of Hadestown went, wait, what? I'd like to see that someday. I have not listened to recording or 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 seen it, (laughs) but I would like to. All right, so let's take a look at the last third of this story. So everything boils to a head. We see this great moment where the smoke is drifting out of the chimney, and we realize that the call to Morpheus is actually going out because of Richard's burning of the paper. Morpheus arrives, and he is just like, 
major ex-boyfriend angry energy, not quite knowing where to put it. Um, and you can just see Calliope just knowing how to talk with him and work with him. And, you know, even though they obviously left on what seems to be terrible terms, I mean, when the fates know how bad they were, you know, like that's a pretty good indicator that it was pretty bad. Um, but you can tell, and she reflects this to him that Morpheus has changed. He has, he has shown up. He is going to help. And so at first he just goes to Richard and just says, Hey, just let her go, let her go. And like, we'll, we'll all be good. And he says, no, cause he needs the ideas. And so that's when dream gives him all the ideas. And this is the great scene where he's lecturing in front of now an, an entirely filled classroom. So in the beginning of the episode, you would have noticed that it was like maybe a quarter full, one third full. Now the classroom is like packed to the gills, standing room only. And ideas just start coming out of him. Abs absurd ideas, abstract ideas, ridiculous ideas, amazing ideas. Um, and he just, ha he has to pause to even say the ideas as he's trying to run out. That is how much they're overtaking him. Eventually he's found by Nora and another student. And he has um, ripped the skin off of his fingers to use his own blood to write the ideas on the wall. At this point, he tells Nora to go back to his house and release the prisoner that he has upstairs. She goes, she finds nothing other than a book, a Ramos's Fry's book, brings that back to him in the hospital. The ideas have gone away. We see that Morpheus and Calliope are back together and they have a brief moment to talk about their son and what their relationship might be moving forward before she heads out down the streets and the scene ends. So Ashley, how do you think this all wrapped up? I, I thought it wrapped up beautifully. I think Melissa Tani Mahout as uh, Calliope just had mm. all of the chemistry necessary to mm. play opposite uh, Tom Sturge. And mm. she really like, I, I feel like she actually carried the scenes with him, even though I think he did Definitely. a great job. Yeah. Um, she just had the gravitas. She had the poise. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and I was just very impressed with her performance. Though Tom Sturge, as angry ex-boyfriend as you described, was truly very horrifying when he starts giving the threats out and describing what's going to happen to Rick. Um it, it was Rick. like, oh, I'm afraid for you, and I hate you. Um, so that was just really, that was really well delivered. Um, mm -hmm. And and even, you know, Arthur Darville having suddenly all of those ideas flood him in the, in the middle of that lecture hall, sort of performed like he's having this intellectual panic attack where he's like trying mm. to stop it as it's happening, but he just can't stop talking. And <coughs> I loved watching the extras in the scene as they're like fiercely writing down all of the ideas as he's saying them as if like they will also be successful if they are able to capitalize on one of these ideas. I thought that was so funny. I didn't notice that. <coughs> Actually funny. Um, and, uh, and, the way the the stairwell was lit, uh, not to show too much, but just a hint of what he was writing on the walls. Mm -hmm. um, I appreciated the the restraint that they showed with that set dressing because I was worried it was going to end up looking a little too Walking Dead, as if they were going to be encountering yeah. some sort of like 
author zombie um, at the end. So I appreciated that they that they kept themselves from looking making it look too gory, but was enough to really understand what he was trying to do. Because again, like thinking about it, with the time between his exit and then him making it to the stairwell, you know, he's only going to be able to write so much with his fingertips. We only have so much blood. Blood flows only so quickly through your fingertips. Whereas like, I think you can get, get away with more gore in a comic book and it'd be sort of, you've already sort of suspended your disbelief. Whereas Mm -hmm. in this Mm -hmm. case, I think it was an appropriate amount of gore um, that, that suited well. Um, And then the, the look on Nora's face when he says, you know, go back to my house, uh, you know, release the woman locked up in in the bedroom upstairs. Um, again, a really well portrayed, subtle look of horror as she mm. like is seeing this person that she really respects and admires and has been helping in her own way. Um, to hear that he has possibly done something really terrible. Um, yeah. and yeah. the the sort of like. Um, sort of going back to, oh, I'm associated with him. Oh, I've helped him with stuff. Had has what I've done for him uh, somehow helped him with this horrible thing he's done? Am I an right. accomplice somehow? Like all of the things of right. the panic of l- learning this, and like probably what that walk to his house would have been like um, is just really. Oh yeah, I can't imagine. Yeah, it's just I, I thought it was really this whole sequence was really well paced, expertly done. Set dressing was perfect, et cetera, et cetera. I could go on and on. Thanks, Ashley. Sean. Uh, yeah, I thought, I thought, you know, I, and I hadn't really talked about like Calliope's, you know, role or her performance much, but I agree that it was really great. It was, um, it, it, it worked out really well. And, and Calliope was much more active in this adaptation, much more of a, you know, protagonist than in the original story. And I thought that, um, you know, she carried that well and it all made sense, you know, and it, she was constantly working towards her own freedom, you know, mm-hmm. by, right. by trying to convince uh, her captor to let her go. Uh, she was ultimately, you know, responsible for piecing that information together to get, you know, yep. to, to get Morpheus there and to get out of there. And so I, I thought, you know, I thought that was, um, that was, that was a, a nice change because the, 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 Calliope of the comic was, you know, much more passive, um, mm-hmm. and especially in the in the end, uh, where you know Morpheus asks, uh, what, you know, what are you gonna do now? And in the comic, she's like, I don't know, go away forever, I guess. Like yeah. basically, that's what she says. She's like, well, I'm just gonna go away forever. I'm just gonna leave the mortal plane, and I'm done now. Uh, and in this, she's like, you know, like, inspire humanity and rewrite the laws by which I was held. She's mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you can do that? That's great. And that's yeah. something that Morpheus actually really needs to hear. When she's like, yeah. I'm going right. to rewrite the laws by which I was held. I am not going to be limited by these rules anymore because they right. were almost responsible for destroying me. And I think right. that that being added there is a nice contribution because it reflects on Morpheus's own conflict, which is his existence bound by these rules and incapable of seeing uh, often a world beyond them or a different way of potentially doing things. Yeah. Totally. That's a great point. Yeah. And, and even that, that, you know, and uh, in the same way, her, you know, that addition of her choosing to forgive Maddock, right? 
you know, in, mm-hmm. in the comic, she also just sort of offhandedly mentions, like, well, I guess you can let him go of this curse now. Uh, and he's like, all right, fine. But, you know, in in this, she's like, I'm, I'm going to have to forgive him to be able to get mm. over this and right. move on. And it's a thing for me, not for him. And if we're going into the Season of Mist storyline next, mm-hmm. like, this is a really nice bridge for that. Because there's some folks Morpheus hasn't forgiven either. And it's going to be important yeah. that he does as well. That's a really good point. Yeah, I like how she separated out, like, a, like forgiving the action and not the person, right? And, like, those can be two mm-hmm. different things. It's a very high level of, like, forgiveness and trying to, like, think through that. Yeah, absolutely. I also like uh, Maddox's uh, pandering answer about his artistic influences. It's like, you know, Shirley oh, Jackson, all, Octavia Butler, like all black, yeah. Morgan, all black oh, women. Oh, oh my okay. gosh! Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, oh, okay. I, I'm sure, buddy. <laughs> I feel like he should have a- added Ursula Le Guin, and those are all great authors, and I love all of their works. But come on, man! It's like, what a mm-hmm, what a douche. Yeah. Yeah, just because he's talking to, like, a black woman. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to pull out these, you know, like, minority women out of my back Uh pocket as my only influences. Well, and I'm sure there is, like, some sort of, like, very close student of Richard um, um, Maddox's work who is just like, where do these influences show up in your writing? There is no one-to-one comparison. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she kind of calls him out and is like, actually, you remind me of Erasmus Fry, you know? Mm -hmm. And and that's that's actually interesting, too, because she informs him that he died uh, by by poison. Now, Mm -hmm. earlier in the episode, this Bezoar, which we don't really know what Fry's going to do with it, but the thing they call out is, is among its magical properties is that it can, you know... It makes you resistant to poison, can heal you from poisoning, and yet Fry dies of poisoning. So I'm not quite sure what we do. What do we make of that? I mean, did 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 he did it not work, or did he actually poison himself? Was he unable to live with himself, and he poisoned himself and didn't use the bezoar at all? I don't know. He does not seem like the kind of guy that gave you know two craps about anything. So I don't think he poisoned himself in like a like a suicidal type thing. That's mm. my. I don't think that happened, but I'm not. I'm not really sure. I, I, I took it to be that he just actually didn't know how to use a bezoar. He, like, thought he knew based off of, like, mm. general lore, but didn't do his research in the way that, say, like, a Burgess coven would have with regard to yeah. these kind mm. of things. And, and frankly, maybe he even referenced some of the Demon King's work and, like, thought he was a scholar and it was like, yeah, bezoar, we're going to do this. And like maybe ran a test and it was just like total failed experiment. He had to find a new hobby apart from yeah, writing. Okay. He lost his muse. That's true. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, I had a last question here. Were there any of Maddox like which of your which what was your favorite Maddox story idea? Did you have one that like stood out to you? Like, oh, actually, I would like to read that novel. Oh, I'm trying to remember what they all were now. Like, um. Uh, okay, so th- I think that the the ones that I really liked was the one about the um the the like coven of of literary critics who are like doing human sacrifice to destroy an author they hate. I would absolutely love to read that novel. Um, and then the other one I really liked, I think, was the man who inherits a library card to the Library of Alexandria. Mm, oh yeah, that one was, was cool. Great. 
The one that I'm now remembering that I really enjoyed because it made me um, think of another science fiction author that I really love is the, a city where the streets are paved with time. Like I was like, how would you even, so I started actually thinking about it. I couldn't come up with anything decent, but I just thought it was a really compelling idea. That's like a, it hurts your brain kind of idea. Yeah. All right, why don't we slide over to final thoughts, last little things you want to get here about this episode. And Ashley, we are starting with you. Yeah, I think altogether, this was an interesting sort of experiment with the genre and adaptation. Um, I really appreciated, I, I, I like that this exists more than I would prefer it not exist. You know, it's, it's not one of those mm-hmm. things where I'm like, I really wish they didn't do this. Even the stuff that I didn't like, I'm still glad they attempted. Um, so... You know, after talking about it, I think Sean had a lot of really great points about how these two narratives hung together in a way that I hadn't considered mm-hmm. before. And it's making me mm-hmm. want to go back and rewatch it and pick up on some of those things. Though I will say, mm-hmm. I think I enjoyed the second half, you know, the second story with Calliope um, than I did Dream of a Thousand Cats. Got it. Thanks, Ashley. Sean? So I guess, like I was saying a little bit earlier that the two stories in this episode are you know very different approaches to stories and the 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 concept of stories and like i said the price one pays um for dreams and i love that they were put together like this because they're exploring these opposite sides these kind of different facets of the idea you know for uh Maddock, a story is something you have it's a, a possession mm-hmm. and it can be bought and sold mm. for the right price and mm-hmm. in dreams of in dream of a thousand cats a story it's not an object or a possession but it's almost like a living thing that is birthed through courage and sacrifice and dedication mm. you know it's not something that can be like kept or taken it's something that is brought forth into the world with the pain and heartache. And then there's really no telling what happens to it after that. And so mm. I thought that was, that was a really powerful uh, overall exploration of what stories do and how they are made and their, you know, how they go about existing in the world. Oh, that's great. Thanks, Sean. All right. So, on the whole, I think we're all really happy that we got this bonus episode. I think even if, you know, on the, you know, animation side, you know, Sean seemed to really enjoy it. You know, Ashley was a little bit more out on it. Um, uh, and especially some of the voice narration work that happens uh, in terms of the little baby kitten and its uh, squeaky little adult voice. Uh, made it a little hard to to get immersed into it. But overall, really great story, told really nicely. And it's always cool to just try something different, right? I remember when um, my parents loved the Steve Miller bands and they went to a show of his and he tried a couple rap songs like in the mid 90s. And, you know, like it wasn't very good, but like he tried it and it was like, you know, a thing. And sometimes you got to let artists like try. And um, on the Calliope episode, I think we we're all in agreement that this may actually be a better presentation of this story than what you get out of the comic, which maybe hasn't been something that we've said wholeheartedly about any single issue to, to TV episode move. But on this one, I think we thought that the way they kind of dealt with the story front to back really told a much more comprehensive 
and complete story, it gave a lot more empowerment to Calliope, which we all really appreciate it and allows that character to be utilized in the future and have more of a, of a story arc. Um, and we thought it did a really good job of showing us, you know, Morpheus's, you know, transformation as he was also locked up, but seeing him interact with somebody that isn't just like people or the endless or some other, you know, uh, Lucifer, some other, you know, dominion like that um it was really good just to see him interacting like in that kind of way thanks for listening to this episode of the sandman unlocked and remember never trust the storyteller only trust the story thanks for tuning in to the sandman unlocked an odd conduit media production you can follow us on twitter and instagram at sandman unlocked Join us on Discord as well. Thanks to our show producer, Patrick Childers, and to Lieutenant Headtrip for our theme and incidental music. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K and on Instagram and TikTok at Ashley Mowers. Find Sean on Twitter at Lon Dogson and find Headtrip everywhere at LT Headtrip. You can get all of this info and more in the show notes. Make sure to follow and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, and remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story.